You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Sadia Hamid. Sadia has worked in the domestic abuse and sexual violence sector for almost a decade with a specialist focus on harmful traditional practices. She is the founder and director of Gloucestershire Sisters, a professional advocacy service that trains and supports professionals working with victims of harmful traditional practices. Um, Sadia is also um, a writer, and I will put links to some of your uh, writing for Fuse, um, and to Gloucestershire Sisters and to other places where you can be found in the show notes. Um, and I would also recommend that everybody reads her ARIO article, The Silencing of Ethnic Minority Victims of Abuse, which is going to be very relevant to our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me, Sadia. Thank you so much for having me, Iona. So I would like to start um, by um, talking a little bit about your own personal background and um, some of the experiences that you yourself have had as a young woman. You grew up in a Pakistani immigrant family Mm -hmm. um, and you're uh, in a a fairly strictly practicing Muslim family who at least had were part of what you of what you have otherwise in other places described as a control culture. So they had strict expectations for you as a young woman, mm-hmm. um, and you were were actually taken to Pakistan at the age of fifteen to be married off to a cousin. Do you want? Could you could you give us a little bit of background on? what it was like growing up in your family and what happened when you were 15 and and why and and how yeah sure so i actually describe them as separatists now um because that's what they were i remember um my very first day of school um and i have a lot of love for my grandmother she's you know as a grandmother i she was lovely um, and she was the one person in my life that actually made me feel like she loved me. That you know, we lived in a very um, abusive and sometimes loveless household. Um, but I knew that she loved me. But on my very first day of school, um, my gran was praying, and I went and sat, at, you know, her at her side, waiting for her to finish her prayers, and. She said to me, don't make friends with any white people um, because they will take you away from your religion. So already you can see that there's this very separatist sort of mindset within that household. And and those ideas have gotten worse within that community um, 
you know, my my grandmother when I was a child used to sort of hug anybody, men and women from any background. She was very, very social with everybody. Um, and now they only engage largely with Muslims and Pakistanis specifically. Um, and they're very, very insular. You know, my grandmother wouldn't touch anybody who was male now. Um, she wouldn't really engage with people from outside of their, their demographic. So that community at that time, yes, were separatists, but they've gotten even worse and they've become more insular. Um, so growing up, our life was heavily controlled, who we um, hang around with. We weren't really allowed to go to anybody's house. If we did go to anybody's house, it was family gatherings or family events or sort of religious events were the extent, uh, the, the, the most freedom we would get. Um, but we never went to anything that we had been invited to personally. It was um, things that say, like a family member or a, a community member had organized a, a religious gathering for children. They might invite us as children specifically, um, but we didn't have any life of our own. You know, I never went to a birthday party, for instance, by that anybody at school had organized. And after a very short time, um, children would stop asking because you, we were never going to go. Um, so our life was very, very, um, very small and very insular. We didn't have lots of friends. Um, and actually, uh, oddly, uh, you know, I spoke to my dad about this some years after, and he was saying that he wasn't really allowed friends either. So it was that every element of our life was controlled. Um, so at the age of 15, I had, uh, a, of course, most of my friends were white because I was told not to make friends with white people. So it made it even more... Um, even more enticing, really. It's like the cake you're not allowed to eat, right? Or, or, or like Eve in the apple, I suppose. Um, uh, so yeah, um, all of my friends were were white, and actually, I didn't really fit in with the community that I'd grown up with. Children from that that background, I'd usually not fit in with them. Um, you know, I didn't really understand things just straight off the bat. If I was given religious teachings, I didn't really understand them because I wanted to know why. And also this at the same time as asking those questions, I was simultaneously all the time told I was stupid for asking those questions. And that chipped away at my confidence as well. I started to I started to feel like I was stupid because I just couldn't understand why the things I was told were the way they were. So asking questions made me feel like I was stupid. So a child's natural instincts are being sort of chipped away um, slowly. Um, at the age of 15, where we had, all, by then I'd been growing up in a household where we didn't really tell each other we love each other. You know, I can't remember my parents telling me they love me or in the household people saying things like that. Um, I remember um, meeting a a boy. Um, he was 18. I was 15. Um, he was white British. Um, he was a blue head punk. Um, so absolutely irresistible, actually, because he was, you know, um, interesting and different. And um, he told me that he fancied me and 
that's just every girl's dream, isn't it? And especially if you've been <laughs> it was lovely. It was really lovely. But I'd never also I'd ne- also never had that kind of interest before. Um, uh, and we started dating. We were dating for about three months, and gradually, gradually, everybody in the community found out. Now. One of the odd things is I knew the risks associated with having relationships that I'm not permitted to have. Um, But at the same time, you kind of, you almost don't engage with those thoughts. Um, I knew because I knew not to tell anybody in the house, um, but I wasn't self-aware enough to make sure no community members saw. Um, I think I did it to a certain extent um, like I would hide it to a certain extent, but I didn't realize how much I needed to hide because everybody in the community was talking. Um, so the family found out eventually that meant that I was pulled out of school. I I never finished my GCSEs two months before my GCSEs were due to start. I was shipped off to Pakistan and dumped out there um, without a passport. They brought my passport back home um, where I was kept prisoner. I was starved. Um, I was beaten. Um, it was torture, um, and uh, I made attempts on my own life. Um, it was a really difficult time. The the it at the time I didn't understand how lucky I was for having the whole family found out that I'd had a white boyfriend. The whole family had found out the things that I'd been up to, um, and it. It benefited me that they did, which at the time I didn't because they were saying horrible things to me, sometimes to my face. Um, I had a family member who um, asked me if I wanted to see his gun. And I was 15 years old and I was like, oh, I've never seen a gun. Of course I want to see a gun. He took me into his bedroom um, and behind him closed the doors and he had this double barrel shotgun that he was showing me and he started walking towards me and he said it's a a shame I've already got two wives and several children because you know nobody else will have you so I could have had you Um, he didn't do anything but the threat was very very real and my dad was only outside outside that room you know in the big kind of um, area outside um but I couldn't tell anybody about that. It took a few years for me to be able to tell people. And actually, nobody cared at that point because, one, I'd already um, had had sex with somebody else. Not that the family knew that. They suspected. I never told them that because that would have meant that I would have been killed out there. But the, the they already knew that I had been had this relationship with a white man. Um, so they, they wouldn't have cared, you know, um, and and actually he would have still been the honorable man, regardless of what his conduct was in that situation. Um, and although, as I say, he didn't do anything to me, that threat was very real. I was 15. He was an adult. I I couldn't even tell you how old he was. I didn't know. I'd never asked, if I'm honest. I knew he was a lot older. He had like a, you know, a lot of children and two wives as I say um but it was it it was a it was a it was a very challenging time a very isolating time and um the interesting thing is from my perspective I I for a long time I felt like I had done something wrong because I was being told I did something wrong and according to that community I'd done something wrong 
but I am English. I was born and raised in this country. I'm not a migrant. Um, I know a lot of sort of um, campaigners and activists and specifically anti-racist sort of activists they will intentionally tell me that I'm a child of migrant or I'm a migrant, um, uh, I have migrant heritage. That's so they can increase their numbers. They want they want to increase their kind of, um, you know, bandwagon as it, uh, at their sort of tribe of people, really. But I am English. And according to the English lifestyle that I have grown up around, Actually, I did nothing wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong in having a relationship, falling in love. You know, there's people who murder people within the community I've grown up in. There's people who rape children, who rape their wives. You know, uh, I, I think that's wrong. Um, but to them, what I did was wrong, and they will justify paedophilia and 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 rape within marriage and domestic abuse. Um, but they will not excuse my behavior, um, which has been, it's been a tough journey to kind of get to the point where I realized that their viewing, their, their views are, are kind of, um, they're, they're, they're kind of skewed. They're, they're not, they're not thinking like what I would think is normal people. Perhaps that's derogatory language. I feel like I, I care less about whether my my views are seen as derogatory now because, you know, my dad was born in England. I'm born in England. We have got several generations now having children in England for them not to have assimilated into the nation that they're living in to me is actually quite worrying now. Um, sorry, that was a very long way of answering your question. No, not at all. Uh, at the time when you were um, when you were being abused by your family and were then sent to Pakistan to try to be forced into marriage, mm -hmm. um, the UK authorities didn't do anything to help you. UK yeah. social workers weren't able to do anything to help you. And I think that you uh, you even said in another interview that, um, the translator who was um, sent to um, interview you was advising your parents to send you to Pakistan. Um, yeah. Tell us yeah. more about that. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, social services were involved because I had run away from home when everything sort of started escalating in the home. Um, and that that was the first time social services had become involved in our family. You uh, ran away to your boyfriend's house, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and they, um, social care became very interested in whether me and my boyfriend at the time were having sex and honed in on that um, rather than what was going on in the home. That what I, they, they were more interested in what I was running at, uh, running to which it was very frustrating because um clearly there was some issues going on in the home and that was the first time I told social services about the fact that there was violence in the home as well and I don't mean like you know your odd smacking nobody was putting me over their knee and smacking me I was having bones broken I was being made to bleed I was cooking and cleaning for the house I was doing everything in that household part of that is being trained up to be a wife now um 
there's that expectation within the household that you will know how to cook and clean by the time you go to your husband's house. Um, but I was doing everything in the house, so much so that I couldn't focus on at school. Um, and social care decided it was appropriate to bring an interpreter to my mum and dad's house when they went to interview them. Now, my mum had at that time been in the country for 16 years. She was very fluent in English. There, there might have been the odd word here and there in professional jargon that she might not have understood. However, she was very competent. Um, my dad was born and raised in England. So why did they bring a, an interpreter? There was no need. To me, that is, this is where, this is where um, I feel at that time, I certainly felt that that was a racist assumption. You know, we're going to see a few darkies. Let's take an interpreter. So just because, you know, we know they don't speak English. And that did make me quite angry. My dad speaks better English than most people. He's highly literate. He's a qualified anaesthetist. He's very, very capable. There was no need to bring an interpreter to our house. That interpreter um, in front of the social worker was able to tell them. So it was all of this started uh, two months before, uh, two and a half months before my 16th birthday. So the social worker said to my parents, she's turning 16 in two months. You want to get her out of the country before she turns 16 because she will be able to do whatever she wants and these guys won't care. They won't do anything to help you. He was framing it as it as though they're here to help you, but if you want to maintain the control, you need to get her out of the country. Um, and uh, as I say, thankfully, because the whole family had found out that I had had this white boyfriend, I became unmarriable. Nobody wants a second-hand bride, as they call it. You know, if you've been used by somebody, they they don't want that. They want you to be virginal and pure. Um, which they rightly presumed I wasn't. So it's quite extraordinary that in front of the social workers, because they didn't speak Urdu, the tra- the interpreter was able to um, side with your parents mm-hmm. and advise your parents on how to get you out of the country before you could become independent and um, before you would be able to uh, escape from their control. That's just, that's a, an extraordinary story. And you have written elsewhere about, elsewhere you talk about, you call them um, high control communities, which I is a phrase that I really like because the focus is, your focus uh, when you use that phrase is not on the ethnicity, although obviously it's it's part of that. But the the crucial thing is the way in which um, the communities exercise control over women in particular, and women and children and younger women in particular. The data from agencies' perspective is really really important, so we can hone in on the or the communities where these practices are prevalent and deal yes. with them. However, from from my perspective, what I think it's important to do is to identify the crime and deal with the crime what what both sides but i think the right and the left have done for a long time is the the I, i'm always cautious how i frame things actually um 
those that want to vilify use use the ethnicity or the religion or the race of the perpetrators to politicize and racialize the those that want to claim that you know everybody is the same and there's no issue at all do exactly the same and ultimately the perpetrators continue getting getting away with criminal activities the victims end up completely lost so i think what's really really important is to identify the crime make sure it's criminalized and dealt with appropriately don't deal with this kind of um don't let let the issue become racialized or politicized because then we don't end up dealing with a crime i mean the, the grooming gangs are a good example of what happens when a crime is both racialized and politicized so the victims don't get justice the perpetrators continue to get away with it and the perpetrators are able to utilize um, that that kind of politicizing of the issue against the victims um, and against the criminal justice system that is supposed to be blind. Um, we really need the criminal justice system not to be activist led, not to be politicized, not to be. Um, uh, it, it, it needs to be blind and impartial for everybody's sake, for victims' sake, for perpetrators' sake, for both perpetrators that are guilty and not guilty so we can ensure that we know that we've got a fully functioning criminal justice system that is going to ensure that when a crime is committed that perpetrators do get the the justice they deserve and victims get the justice they deserve too yeah there seems to be um an assumption that on on the part of many people on the more woke side of the left in particular, that communities should be somehow self-regulating or self-policing. Mm. Um, and so um, there's often an appeal, they will ask self-appointed spokespeople from the community or spokesmen, because it's almost always men, mm. um, to to say what is and isn't acceptable to the community as a whole, um, mm. to say, say the... Um, Asian Muslim community in the UK, say the Pakistani Muslim community. And mm. first of all, the people that they um, interview and the people whose voices they listen to as spokespeople tend to be the most extreme representatives, um, yeah. the most censorious and religiously orthodox, um, mm -hmm. and the, the same people who are upholding a uh, a misogynistic and homophobic culture within the community yeah. and it's also some of the descriptions you gave from your early life your experience of the the tight-knit segregationist um religious um british muslim community um mm -hmm. were it it has a kind of it has this feeling of Lord of the Flies, like the mm. adults are going to abdicate responsibility here and, and leave the bullies in charge. Yeah. One of the most concerning things about this, though, is that it's the perpetrators and those that wish to protect the perpetrators that are defining what the perfect victim is. And actually, along with that, what we have got is certain women's organizations that did some great work historically 
feeding into that now. Um, you know, paint, painting this caricature of what the perfect victim is. So when I was 15 and I had, and when I was 15, I was very submissive at that time. I did not have the guts to speak out because I was still a child. And if you think about your own life as a, as a child, you, you're less sure of yourself as a young person than as an adult. As an adult, you become very capable of standing up for yourself and, um, and kind of, you know, you just become very, very self-sure. As a 15-year-old, you're not likely to do that. But that, that fits the perfect caricature of a victim who's not going to speak back, who's not going to um, challenge uh, the elders that is that's a wonderful victim when I'm a victim now and I still have coming from the community that I've come from I'm never not going to experience these issues I'm never going to not experience that control so it's my responsibility to learn to navigate that and I can do that far more capably today than I could when I was 15 but when I'm a victim now it means that because I don't fit that caricature of what they decide a victim is, then I don't deserve the help or the support that somebody who is quiet, who can't speak the language, who is isolated, who just quietly takes the beating, I'm not deserving of support. You know, today we're seeing a, a specialist focus from agencies. Um, I, I'm not going to name the agencies, but they've really honed in on migrant women because they fit beautifully this caricature of what a good victim is. And we've worked really hard to move away from that in this country, because we know that when you're experiencing ongoing trauma continually within a household, be it honor-based violence or domestic abuse or whatever it is, you're likely to respond in a, a kind of a range of ways. Um, but we, we're, we're, we're going backwards in terms of the work that was done to move away from those those victim caricatures to moving back to that. Um, so the Gobia women, when they get assaulted, when they get harmed or abused, you know, they must have they must have deserved it because you know, how can this Gobi woman be abused by anybody? Um, and that's that's concerning. And these community leaders that people are wanting to engage with, be it the the mainstream press or um, services or whatever it is, they're allowing that to happen by engaging with these very, very, very hardline religious and community leaders. Um, but whilst we're on this issue of, uh, uh, you know, religion and, and culture, I do want to say um, I've been part of both communities. I've been part of a religious community and I've been part of the irreligious community. One will tell you, the religious community will tell you it's not religion, it's culture. Um, and they will berate culture quite comfortably because that safeguards their religion from scrutiny. And then I've been part of the irreligious community um, and the atheist sphere. Um, and they will tell you it's all religion. It, you know, the culture's beautiful, but it's all religion. And I've come to realize over time, being part of both tribes that it is both 
religion and culture is intertwined, but culture is just as much to blame as religion is. If you come from a culture or a community that is highly misogynistic, highly um, homophobic, and we know some communities and cultures are, and some religions are, um, then the people that come from those, the 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 regions of the world that have those ideas the communities that have those ideas even if they um you know even if they leave faith they're still likely to behave like that um and that is my personal experience as well i've experienced that kind of very very misogynistic behavior um from people who have left the islamic faith as well they 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 paint themselves as morally superior because they've left a misogynistic faith whilst continuing that very, very misogynistic attitude and conduct. I had clients that would only ever shout at me in my old job, um, and these were people who had left the faith. They would tower over me because they felt like they were they were they had complete they had the complete right to do that. Their attitude and their conduct was no different even after having left the faith. So there is this there is this need now to have this discussion about um, both culture and religion together, because I don't think they're as separate as easy to separate as people think. Um, I can absolutely um, I can absolutely back that up um, because I've experienced certainly um, some people who are extremely um, misogynistic. Um, controlling of women, uh, patriarchal um, Hindus who are uh, culturally Hindus but are, are not religious believers and would even describe themselves as atheists. Yeah, exactly. I, you, when you were talking about your early life, you, um, you painted a very vivid picture of how insular um, such communities can become even with here within the UK. I your image of the of that community as a separatist community, the community that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, you describe very vividly that um, at one point you were afraid that all brown people were potential spies for your family, all local brown people, and. You used to tell people your name was Anita and you were from India. Yeah. Because you were worried that other local Muslims who saw you when you were outside the home um, dating or wearing Western clothes or um, going out late or doing other, exercising your freedom in other ways, behaving like a, a normal Western person would. Um, mm-hmm. they would tell your family and that would have repercussions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's quite that's quite extraordinary. And I can certainly empathize with that with that idea of the very uh, insular community. And I have a kind of co- a slightly comic story to tell about that from my own experience, which is that my uh, ex-boyfriend, um, mm-hmm. who is from an Ishmaeli, Muslim family and the two of us were out his fam he and his family are are very liberal but the two of us were out at a Chinese restaurant with friends uh-huh. and 
a couple arrived who had been invited who we hadn't we didn't know and um he had ordered sweet and sour pork and when the couple arrived and he saw that the woman was in hijab he leapt up in a huge panic and went to find the waiter to have his to get him to change his order and he told me um you know he didn't want he didn't want this woman to see him it would be a embarrassing if she witnessed him eating pork and also it might get back to his family and yeah. he would be in trouble yeah so and that that's a much more minor situation but the kinds of repercussions potentially facing you were very serious yeah but it would have been the same sort of repercussions for him like it, that that because that's a very disproportionate reaction to pork right so we're, what we're thinking about is he would have also been living been living with a level of control that meant that he couldn't put in his mouth the things that he wanted to sounds ridiculous right that is the level of control within that community that has created that much fear in him i mean to to be constantly looking over your shoulder to see who is watching you what they're thinking what they're going to report back like uh, I, 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 some years ago i'd written um like a little comedy skit thing, which I was hoping to film at some point, but it never really happened, if I'm honest, of just like, um, you know, these ledgers that um, brown people would have, brown people in the corner shop having ledgers of every time they see another brown kid writing down what they're doing, who they're with, finding their the relevant contact number and calling the the relevant parent to to grasp them up. The same with the taxi driver, that kind of thing. And I was thinking about it because actually that was our reality and still is. You know, there is a very very complex um, reporting system that they have within that community. Everybody is watching, everybody's reporting back because that is your social capital. Your social worth is increased by not shifting the focus away from what you are or are not doing onto how much, how tapped in you are to what the children of everybody around you is doing. The, the, the way they increase their social capital is by, um, shifting the focus away from themselves essentially is a it's about um painting yourself as better by painting others as not not meeting the mark um that's certainly been my experience i'm sure others might might tell you different but my experience has been that community members are continuously trying to paint other people as worse not themselves not focusing in on themselves there isn't much of a focus on your own and your own yourself and your own family um you know the the kind of the focusing on um what other people are or are not doing is generally what's what's kind of keeping that ecosystem going um i mm. i've always been quite concerned about about this you know the parents or the families that move away from the the kind of insular community hubs that have been created or, or ghettos for want of a better word actually um they tend to um the children tend to do better 
the the family tends to be more stable because there's not that continuous pressure of who's watching, who's saying what, who's doing what. They can just focus on their family. However, um, those that are kind of enmeshed in those in those insular communities, the pressure is unreal. And I have to say, it took me uh, maybe ten years at least before I stopped feeling that constant threat. Um, even in even where I live now in in Gloucester. Um, Thankfully, I actually don't have any family here. I moved to the one part of the whole country where I have no family, which is very rare if you ask any brown person. Um, but even here, when I saw a brown face, I, I felt like there was the risk of death. It wasn't even that it was the risk that somebody might say something or, um, you know, the risk felt much, much higher. It was always they might grab me they might kill me because my experiences have been so so extreme with the community itself um now i don't feel like that because i've I, it's taken a long time one to make myself safe and two they have nothing to they have nothing to threaten me with previously there was the threat that um they were going to tell my parents and my parents would do the same again um you know they would t- take my passport, dump me in Pakistan. And as an adult, children's social care aren't going to get involved. We've also seen adults that have been taken to Pakistan, murdered, and there's been an investigation in, uh, I'm doing air quotes, which obviously you can't see, um, in Pakistan. And the parents, the murderers, have been acquitted because it's very easy to bribe the authorities out there. You've got a nation where absolutely the it's it's normal within the community to um harm or indeed murder children that have dishonored their families and the authorities are part of that so why would they um properly investigate an honor killing you know we there's there's plenty of examples of of things like that so if if my family were to try something like that and were to try and murder me out there I wouldn't have any any real legal recourse um but I have I've removed myself completely from my family and taken complete control which for my family I mean I've always been a little bit luckier in the sense that my family won't murder me um, there's been violence, incredible violence, but they, I've not had that threat of murder from my mum and dad. From other family members, I have. Um, I recently had to take the decision not to, when my dad goes, when my dad passes on, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to attend his funeral because there have been family members that have said that they would behead me, that they would murder me with their own hands because they don't like my lifestyle. Um so that means I have had to choose to remove myself from all aspects of my family for my own personal safety. And that's in England. This isn't happening in Pakistan. Um, and where do I go with that? What do I do with that? Because nobody knows what to do with things like this in this country. We've left this demographic unpoliced for far too long. And we've colluded with perpetrators with that community for far too long. Yeah, yeah. There's an extraordinary kind of 
internal surveillance in the community. And that's something that I recognize a little bit um, from having from being a Parsi, being a member of a very small ethnic group and having lived in a um in a gated Parsi community in India. Um although the Parsi community is very liberal and there were certainly no death threats and being an atheist is not a big deal and um dating somebody outside the community is not a big deal. But nevertheless I know how in those kinds of communities um everybody knows which finger you use to pick your nose. And I think at one point you said you in one article you suggested that MI6 might uh, want to recruit their spies from within the Pakistani aunties because they're so good at um, at uh, surveillance. I think that one of one of the problems I th- I think we agree on this. One of the problems is uh, one of the things that makes your job now in working to prevent these kinds of harms to members of, um, to vulnerable people mm-hmm. is that identity politics has led us to valorize um, and idolize the idea of community, especially minority communities, mm-hmm. and to see, um, to view people in terms of their place within a, a supposed hierarchy of a uh, of power that is based primarily on ethnicity and skin color, in which if you are, for example, a Pakistani or Bangladeshi man, then you are automatically considered to a certain degree oppressed, downtrodden, disadvantaged, etc. And therefore, liberal, uh, right minded people should be protecting you and upholding your interests. And of course, the kinds of crimes that you are talking about and the kind of abuse that you're talking about, which happens within communities, within families, behind closed doors, um, in those situations, that man may be absolutely a, a tyrant within his own family. He may be the perpetrator and the abuser. So we we have come to think about power as being something intrinsic your your position in a power hierarchy is intrinsic to your skin color or your race um whereas in fact power is always situational yes i agree i agree and it's it is incredibly frustrating because there's there's an infantilization of um ethnic minorities and specifically perpetrators. I had, I was, um, I attended some training for um, for my one of my uh, jobs recently, and they were talking about refugee men specifically and perpetration. And one of the things they were talking about was we need to make, uh, we need to help these men understand the situations they've left their women in. And I felt myself. Sort of almost burst with anger, if I'm honest, because they can't pretend that that these men don't know. Don't infantilize them. They spend their entire life telling women that they are weak, that they are vulnerable. If they step outside of their home, they're likely to be raped. They're likely to be abused. Which actually paints how ignorant they are in other ways. Because what we do know is they're more likely to be raped by somebody that's known to them. That's a, that's a fact, right? It's easy access. So there is that ignorance on that level. But 
they know the situation they're leaving their, their women in, right? So the, what, what it highlighted to me was how ignorant organizations and professional services are about these demographics. They, um, they, they assume that these men are stupid. They're very clever very very clever they tell these women all their lives i i actually again i have some quite extreme views about this i think that they're cowards i'm absolutely disgusted by somebody who tells a woman his entire life that she's weak she needs a protector she cannot function in society by herself we're not going to let you get educated because you know we don't want you to be too free. We're not going to let you go out to work because you might get harassed. We're not going to let you set foot outside of the house. We're going to prison you in a black bin bag so that you don't get you don't get perved on, you don't get a, a groped, and all of these things. The moment there's any threat, he pisses off and leaves her by him by herself. I've got to go ahead and and do all of these things. But this this society that I've told you is a risk to you, your entire life. I'm going to abandon you in this society. How can you have any respect for that? How can anybody have any respect for that? And don't pretend to me that these men do not know the situation they're leaving these women in because they tell these women this every single day so so that they can control them. They tell them that every day. They know exactly what they're leaving these women behind in. And it's exactly the same here. We treat ethnic minorities as if they're stupid, particularly the men. That's because it's very easy for them to tell us, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, understand the rules and regulations of this country. I've heard um, uh, the FGM campaigner, what's her name? Um, she's a government advisor now. She she was saying how if ethnic minorities know not to get parking tickets, not to get speeding fines, they know they can follow certain laws. How is it when it comes to violence against women, misogyny, um, homophobia, they don't understand the law? Why are we giving them that? I don't understand mm. it. So when when I hear excuses made when it comes to um, violence against women in now I actually feel quite angry about it because to me this is uh, this is I mean it's a really really overused phrase now but it is just the racism of low expectations they they think that that we're deserving of worse treatment than our our English counterparts and as I said before yeah, sorry. Is it Hebo Warderi you're thinking of? No, no. It's, it's um, or Leila Leila Hussein. No, there's another one. Um, uh, oh, Nimco Ali. That's it. That's it. Yes, yes. Nimco said that. Yes. Um, yeah, she rather fantastically said that. Um, you know, the, the ethnic minorities are perfectly capable of following the law when it comes to some things, but when it comes to violence against women, all of a sudden they're ignorant of the law. No. But they know exactly what they're doing. And actually, because we act as if they don't understand, we allow them to wield that as a weapon and utilize it to continue abusing not just their own women, but other women as well, all women. And that's unacceptable. Um, and I think it doesn't matter if somebody's been in the country for one day or, you know, a decade. 
they have to understand that there are certain things that you do and don't do in according to British law. If you go to any Islamic country, they will make allowances for you not understanding their legal system. Absolutely not. So why should we do that here? The law has to be the law and the law has to be blind and impartial. That's what we expect. And the law needs to protect individuals and uphold the rights of individual citizens, not a community or a religion or a group. Um, we shouldn't be talking about community or group rights. We should be talking about freedom for each person to um, live their lives free from fear, free from violence, um, able to exercise normal personal freedoms, etc., I think that this, I mean, this, this is a mistake I see happening among some people on the right as well. That they mm. are, uh, for example, they think the answer is not taking in any more uh, immigrants from Pakistan. Mm. Mm. And um, we are both the children of of immigrants mm. uh, from Pakistan, mm. and um, my my. Father had my father remained in Pakistan, he would have been as a non-Muslim religious minor member of a religious minority. He would have been in serious danger in that society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, you know what we need to do is uphold, protect, and support individuals. And in that, the state is com- uh, is completely derelict of its duty, both Mm -hmm. if we stop taking in immigrants and refugees and supporting those people, and also if we allow these communities to quote-unquote self-police or Mm -hmm. self-regulate. I think people wouldn't have as much issue with um, uh, mass migration or migration at all if they felt like that the law was applied equally across the board. What we've had for a very, very long time is certain demographics not being policed, not being um, integrated fully into community. There's there's a kind of bullishness with, with within certain demographics, both within their own, both towards their own community, but with other communities as well, um, and. We haven't we haven't been successful in upholding what what are British values of you know fair play individual liberty um, insure, and the community as well right that for me my community is the area that I live in that is my mm. community and that mm. is important not the demographic that I belong to. But the area that I live in, my neighborhood, that is important to me. I care about what it looks like, how clean it is, those kinds of things, you know. And if you don't care about the place that you live in and you identify solely with your kind of ethno-racial or religious sort of demographic, that can start becoming quite dangerous um, as we've seen for a very, very long time. There's no... There's no kind of personal or social investment into your area anymore. You prioritize the, the the kind of religious or ethnic community that you belong to. And also it can create an active hostility towards the area that you live 
live in if you're not getting what you want out of that again what we we've already seen um so i do think people's ideas that come into britain matter um you know if somebody's coming to live in the uk that says that they hate the english or hate england i don't understand why you're wanting to come to a country that you hate because then that that hate continues and you pass that down the generations we've certainly seen that within the pakistani community in various ways generation after generation of young people who are told that they must hate the people and the country that they live in which should be very worrying to us because how much can you hate and that hate's just been growing over the years and the hostility's been growing over the years which is worrying you know they have to be part they have to be allowed to be part of the country that they're living in um which i don't feel like they have been allowed to be a part of that that continual separatist idea has been pushed onto young people um to the point where they start feeling like they belong nowhere um mm. and that's been very very unhealthy mm. yeah we need shared civic projects shared goals shared values and um i think that those kinds of values are i don't i don't usually talk about call them british values because i think of them as um basic human rights and mm. universal liberal humanist values but we mm. are lucky enough i am fortunate enough to be making this podcast from here in the uk and not in pakistan uh where those values are not uphold held so in that sense they're british values we're lucky enough that those values are important to people here in this country mm. and therefore we need to be more consistent in our application of those values and not see them as somehow contingent on skin color or ethnicity or national origin mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that would have been what sewed us together we haven't had a kind of civic nationalism in this country um and and that's what we needed actually um my political party is one that does um try to sew people together in that way and i'm very very proud of them um i don't know if you follow the sdp the social democratic party but it's the only party yes. found that kind of sentiment um uh, and i feel like we we really really need that right now we've needed it for a long time but we need it now more than ever um and i've been concerned at the divisive rhetoric that we've seen um from all the other political parties and all of the kind of you know paul embry i think tweeted recently that we have to bear in mind that identity politics has exploded under the watch of the conservative party yes the labor party have fallen for it hook line and sinker and nobody's ever going to trust them again uh on these issues you know both both political parties have let us down both of the mainstream political parties have let us down when it comes to to the issue of identity politics certainly the the conservatives are trying to undo a lot of what's been done over the last you know decade or so um however this did actually happen on the watch of the conservative party um so i i don't i don't trust either of the main two political parties and there's no point in talking about the liberal democrats because they're a joke in themselves um for other reasons but um well actually even they have 
kind of fall and hook, line and sinker for identity politics um, and divisive rhetorics. So, uh, you know, we, we do need to find a way, um, a, a mechanism of sewing us back together. And I do think civic nationalism is that that kind of tool. Yeah, I think in the US, identity politics is thought of as very much a left-wing issue, a democratic party issue, etc. But here in the UK, it's just become so culturally hegemonic that Mm. um, all the political parties are basically pandering to it because they think that's what will get them votes. Um, And it's really not a a left-right divide. It's more a case of, um, I mean, I don't know that whether a majority of people are in favor of identity politics or whether it's just that um, people are self, people who oppose it are self-censoring or yeah. those who are in favor are just more vocal but politicians seem very afraid of offending that particular lobby. And um, that that is the problem. Yeah. It's not that it's part of their principles in some way in either party. It's more that it's it's a cultural phenomenon that they are not, no one is willing to stand up to right now. Mm. That's my feeling. Or not enough people, sorry, not no one, obviously, and being yeah. hyperbolic. <laughs> we we all do that at times, I know. Yeah, um, frustrate. My frustration is speaking here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I completely understand that. I completely echo that. I do want to. I do feel like this is a minority. Um, the the kind of hysterical, woke, um, uh, you know, extremists are a minority but they're a very aggressive minority you know we constantly hear chants of resign or get this person sacked that has become so normalized that people now that don't have those views or even just don't care about them they can't even say that i don't care about these things most people just want to crack on with their lives they're not interested most normal, rational, sensible people are are, are quite fair, you know? They want everybody to have fair, equal rights. But when you start pushing for priority rather than equality, which is what we've seen from a lot of these activists, that they want to, they don't want to level the playing field. They want to uh, shift it entirely in their own favor. Then that gets people's backs up and completely understandably, um, you know, we know what we did wrong in the past. What we don't want is to for the roles to reverse. So somebody else is on the bottom. We want everybody to have a fair playing field a level playing field which I think is is a a noble goal but when you start um kind of bullying to um be the one that gets to be above everybody else or to prioritize yourself then people get a bit pissed off rightly so as well it's not acceptable really yeah Um, yeah you know if I experience and I have experienced racism much much less than my parents and grandparents but I did experience racism and thankfully in the last you know last decade or so it's been 
a lot less than it's ever been before. Actually, I I have to say now when I experience racism, it's from the defenders of, uh, you know, from anti-racists, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> and that kind of patronizing uh, talking down to, I often get from uh, friends that are um, anti-racist who are not, you know who are who are white themselves, which is also very very interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I have experienced racism, but but I didn't ever think that because I've experienced it, I want to be racist myself. I never ever thought that. I never thought I, I can't wait for my turn to be a racist piece of crap. I thought this is something that has got to stop. For everybody you know if I if I experienced something and I saw somebody experiencing something similar I would have been just as upset I have I have um, worked with people who claim to be anti-racist and simultaneously tell me that they hate white people um, that they hate the English which I found disgusting when was yeah. the last time you you know you you could eliminate hate with more hate like that doesn't work um we is it, i mean i don't need to explain that we just know it doesn't work but yeah what, yeah the anti-racists are so full of hate and in a in a way that i've never ever known before thank as i say thankfully i didn't experience the racism that my dad or my grandparents experienced the the racism i experienced would have been much much less so than them um and I do, if I did have that kind of relationship with them, I probably would ask them if, if there were any parallels between the the racist, sort of the more aggressive racism that they faced and the anti-racists that they see in their conduct. Is there any similarity? I wonder if anybody could do that analysis between the old, um, the old aggressive style racists and today's anti-racists. I think it's very different in a way. So I do remember, um, I, I do remember a much more racist time here in the UK, mm -hmm. um, in the eighties, um, in the seventies and eighties, but I, I, I was in Pakistan during most of the seventies. So, um, and that was, um, so that was, a that was white people largely obviously not all white people a minority of racists um mm -hmm. but racists who were who were white who were victimizing um minority communities and i certainly remember the paki bashing uh the national front i remember seeing skinheads on the street um mm -hmm. and i remember that the 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 old guy and his two sons who seemed to spend day and night at their little uh, corner convenience store, the Packy stores, we called it in those days. Um, mm -hmm. And the older man who looked a lot like my father in appearance yeah. were terrorized by local thugs. Um, yeah. And I think that, that that racism was certainly part of... Um, not the whole story, but part of the reason why some of these communities became so insular in the first place. And I can actually see that same dynamic playing out right now in India. Um, I yeah. can s see people in who used to be very liberal, 
um, and very integrated into society. Uh, Muslims from communities where they were happy to date non-Muslims, be friends with non-Muslims, socialize, etc., um, becoming much more segregated and insular, much more hardline, more religious, more conservative, mm. uh, in response to the um, in response to the bigotry of the Hindu nationalists. Yeah. So I see them just retreating back into their little communities, and this is incredibly damaging for everybody, including the people, well, especially for the people within those communities. Mm -hmm. So I do recall that. That was a bit different because that was, we group of white people hate those brown people. Yeah. Um, whereas this is more complicated because the um, a lot of the anti-racist rhetoric is coming from white people themselves and mm. it is therefore in a sense I think it's less dangerous because I don't think people are going to um they're not going uh, you know if a white person is an anti-racist and mm. has strongly hostile views about other white people that is that is a problem um but they're not there they are their own families are likely to be contain many white people, their colleagues, their friends, their children, their parents, etc. So it's much harder to to kind of create a real I don't think violence is going to erupt in the same way as I think violence might erupt in India. Um, yeah. I think that but I still find the I find it dangerous in in subtler ways, because yeah. it goes against the kind of civic uh, nationalism that I would like to see, or this, or civic internationalism, um, mm. the liberalism, the humanism, the valuing of people as individuals, and and gets back to this idea of of reducing people to their identities and skin colors, which I absolutely hate. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, I guess um, just something really important to point out here, though, is that one of the things that um, we can be quite proud of in England is that when the National Front and those those racist thugs were um, kind of um, operating in England, actually they were a minority and there was a much, much, much bigger kickback against the racists of that time. The, the, anti, mm. the, the, the historic anti-racist movement, which was actually anti-racist um, in the truest sense of its meaning, um, they were much, much bigger and much, much stronger. We started, you know, when migration started in this country, we were shagging each other and having children together straight away <laughs> you know unlike yeah. america we 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 were really intrigued by newcomers and we wanted to have sex and have babies and you know we, we there was that movement as well um and and i think similarly um for the people uh, because it's very we've got two tribes at the moment haven't we? we've got the woke and anti-woke and obviously the woke are very easy to dislike because of their bullish thuggishness but actually we could i have seen quite a lot of anti-woke people who have become just as obnoxious and unpalatable in many ways even though oh, yeah. i'm on the side i find them sort of 
they make me cringe in their response sometimes. Um, but what I do have to say, and it's very, very important, is I think that the the new racists that we have in this anti-racist guise today are also a minority. We still have a lot of people who are just, you know, they have common sense. They can see that these guys are hysterical and irrational and divisive, and they put them in the box that they belong, you know, that, that they're not really important in their everyday lives. Now, I, I also know the impact that they're having on our jobs and our everyday lives as well. And lots of people are having these conversations in secret by themselves. They're talking at their dinner table about the, you know, the ridiculousness of some of the things that they're saying and they're doing. So that we we do have this culture of um, going against stupid ideas in this country we are quite good at thinking for ourselves as well and I do feel like we have to give credit where credit belongs in this country um of of that practice of you know that desire of shagging each other and having children together and falling in love is far far stronger than this these divisive rhetorics that are continually injected into our society um so it provided that never stops i think we're actually on a on a a good road in in england and in britain um and the other thing i guess that's important as well is um as you say about how you know you said that um historically you remember the paki bashing my dad used to talk about stuff like that one of the good things though is that we now understand the impact of um the the kind of belittling and name calling and humiliating so working in domestic abuse i've worked both with victims that have had the shit kicked out of them and i've worked with victims that have been emotionally and psychologically tormented if we take two clients that have potentially had the the same length of relationship, so as an example, if I have a client who's been who's had the crap kicked out of them for two years, and then I have a client who's been emotionally abused and coercively controlled for two years, the client who has had the crap kicked out of them for two years, both of the abuses are unacceptable. Both of them are harmful. What clients often tell us is once the physical abuse stops, they are able to um, almost recover from it quicker than when there has been ongoing mental abuse. Part of that is because physical abuse, you know, this was happening. This perpetrator is no longer able to physically reach you. The bruises have healed. You can start the process of recovery and recover from that because the 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 thing that was happening was your body was being harmed with the mental and psychological abuse once they get into your head it's much much harder for for victims to be able to remove that um and i guess in many ways for people experiencing the 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 the, the happenings of of today with the anti-racists although i absolutely agree that there is less of a physical threat from the the i'm just going to call them racists i'm not going to call them anti-racists i don't want to give them that uh the racists of today i think that the impact of this is going to last much much longer than the historic 
racism that we saw and the recovery period is going to be much, much longer. That's just my theory. Um, I don't know if it's a good theory or not. I'm just be- because my my professional background is domestic abuse. I always tend to go back to that <laughs> to kind of look through things through that lens. Um, and I've I, I in my as I've been thinking about it, I've been wondering if our recovery from this is going to take much much longer because it's it doesn't have that physical element. It doesn't have that physical stopping, um, and we can then. The, the processing of that is going to take much, much longer. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, what concerns me in answer to your question, um, mm. I don't want to answer it at too much length because I think I have talked about this a lot uh, mm. in other episodes too, um, mm. because it comes up continually at the moment because of the current environment, current socio-political environment But one thing that I have noticed is that whereas in the past, um, what one thing I've noticed when talking to personal friends um, Mm. who are definitely not racists, but in the past where they would have not mentioned the race of the person involved when talking about a particular situation, um, now I hear them inserting the race of the person um, in all kinds of situations. And um, I hear people, friends and acquaintances, saying things, um, prefacing things with the word white or white person that would sound extremely yeah. racist if they had used any other descriptor. So, yeah. for example, um, a friend was complaining about um, complaining about some people who are making some petty complaints. And he said, I really hate, you know, these awful white guys, these white men complaining about X and Y really pisses me off. And I just, I think that if he had said, I really hate these packy guys complaining about X and Y, it would sound just brutally racist. Um, And I'm, uh, it, it sort of shocks me to hear that word that racial descriptor being used in that way, as if it's kind of a, as if he were saying these annoying guys. Obviously, to say somebody is white is not in itself any kind of uh, slur, um, but it it feels like a slur in that context. It's like an additional thing that angered him about them was yeah. that they were um, white people. And it has been turned into a derogatory word, hasn't it? Because I'm finding that actually, I, I don't know if you're the same, but hearing people use white now has the same impact on me as if they had used the N word or, you know, said Paki. Like it makes me cringe in that exact same way now. Does it, does it, does it do the same for you? Not really with the N word, which I, I think. I actually think I've never heard the N-word said in real life. Um, mm. And it has become for me this sort of mythical American <laughs> thing. Um, but I think that um, it doesn't have the same impact, but it does make me cringe. I guess mm. it doesn't have the same impact because I think for a lot of people, they are just sort of caught up in the discourse mm. and it's they're not even thinking when they say it, 
they're not mm. even kind of aware of the implications of what they're saying. Whereas I think if somebody is using the N-word um, as a slur, um, you know, the use of the word rather than in a mentioned context, like electron linguistics or something, if they're using the N-word at some somebody, I think that they are very aware and what they're trying to do is cause um, hurt or upset or outrage or... Um, I still mm. think they should be permitted to because I'm a free speech absolutist. But mm. I think they're very aware of the impact that they're going to have and they want to have that impact. Whereas I think a lot of people saying these annoying white guys, etc., um, there's a lack of awareness there, which doesn't make it any better in a way on a societal level. But on an individual level, I attribute less blame to them. However, mm. I also notice people um, trying to be politically correct in their way of talking about um, non-white people and ending up saying things that sound incredibly cringy and awkward to me and even racist to me. Um, and um, that's also really odd. Um, uh, you know, somebody remarked that there was a, a photo of me with a friend at the theater and, and someone remarked it, it it wasn't exactly this this is going to sound way more clumsy because i have forgotten the precise phrasing it was something like so nice to see you at the theater with a black person <laughs> which is just <laughs> so and they meant it they were you know i think they would never have even thought of it in those terms or said something like that if they hadn't been awkwardly trying to yeah. conform to the the discourse yeah. so i didn't even blame them for that this is a person who is in general quite awkward and yeah. uh, a person with asperger's who's generally quite awkward at social things and i think this person was just attempting to say the right thing but it yeah. sounded so <laughs> um it sounded so comical to me and so weird yeah, yeah. I completely understand that. It is, I mean, such a weird environment has been created around um, around language. Um, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but he's, he's such a lovely, he's a good friend. Um, uh, uh, his name's Obeid Umar. Um, oh, yes, I, I know Obeid, yes. Yeah, he's lovely. Um, but we were talking about how um, this, these, these new this new woke sort of um, tribe has made us hate language. I'm finding things that I would have said quite normally and comfortably before, I feel wary of using that language now because it's so loaded. They've kind of, um, they've, they've made us tiptoe around each other so much. Um, and I'm quite saddened by that because I think there's certain boundaries that you push with friends and loved ones so that you can learn and understand what is what is okay to say and what isn't okay to say mm -hmm. um you, you do that in the home you do that with your friends you do that with your nearest and dearest you kind of learn to push those boundaries and determine what is and isn't socially acceptable and it feels like what they've done is laid eggshells everywhere so you're mm. constantly tiptoeing around and that's a very unhealthy society to create like you i'm i'm a free speech abs absolutist 
I do think with that, I mean, personally, I think manners are important. Um, yes, and I, of course. Right. And I do think you can say whatever you want. You can be as offensive as you like, but being offensive or you can do that with manners still. Um, I'll send you a brilliant clip that I watched um, of somebody that I don't, whose politics I don't agree with, but the way he speaks is just delightful. Um, but yeah, I, I do think um, we we have to have arenas where we're comfortable to say whatever comes into our mind and to um, kind of learn, you know, kind of a soundboard to check our ideas against um and those are the people closest to us and if they become dangerous I, as i've experienced some friends became very very embroiled in the blm kind of movement uh in the last couple of years and it felt like i couldn't say anything to them without them bursting into hysteria or becoming very very emotional <laughs> over something that has nothing to do with them personally nothing to do with this country nothing to do with our politics in in england um they became very emotionally um unstable and very difficult to talk to uh, but i feel like that environment's been created across the country um it's it's not it's, it's really not healthy and it makes it harder for us professionally as well that are dealing with sort of complex crimes this the kind of things that i would work on because we're having to tiptoe around people and watch how we say things rather than just clearly saying this is a crime this is how we deal with it this is the demographic that's more likely to do it etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah i mean the impact wise i definitely see that in in the professional sphere absolutely yeah, in one of the art, one of your articles that I read, um, you said that. Um, so, for example, um, Asian Brits. So, by Asian being British, I mean primarily people from uh, Pakistani and Bangladeshi uh, backgrounds uh -huh. are overrepresented in prisons and yeah. overrepresented within the criminal justice system, and the kind of woke approach to that is oh we're imprisoning too many pakistani men we need to imprison fewer pakistani men we need to convict fewer pakistani men and that sort of broad statistical approach is a really inappropriate approach to take to the law which needs to be about the merits of each individual case mm -hmm. and you said that um one reason why um, there are more uh, Pakistani perpetrators are more likely to be convicted is that the authorities, when there is a case of um, domestic abuse or sexual violence, the authorities are much less um, are much more reluctant to intervene if it's within a minor if the perpetrator is a member of an ethnic minority and particularly in this case pakistani yeah ethnic minority because they don't want to be seen as racist yeah and absolutely. there's also they fear being frank about what is going on because they fear that that will lead them to be seen as racist yeah. and therefore when the crime actually comes to court, it's already escalated to a more serious level. And so those men are getting longer sentences if they're convicted. 
Yeah. So with domestic abuse, if you look at the statistics, what they say is that a victim of domestic abuse would have experienced about 36 incidents before they contact the police or contact the authorities. Now, with ethnic minorities, usually they have experienced abuse for a lot longer, sometimes almost a decade of abuse before they contact the authorities. Now, part of the reason for that is we have, as a society, justified the abuse going on within ethnic minorities. We are very cowardly when dealing with um, abuse going on within ethnic minorities, right? That is a huge distance between, um, uh, like, the, the wider population and then ethnic minorities. The abuse has been going on much, much longer. Now, as a professional, what I've seen is if a neighbour hears shouting in their neighbour's household and they're white British... Um, they are more likely to call the police for a welfare check. That doesn't mean that they're calling the police on them. They're asking them to come out and check what's happening or call the police. So one of two things, right? So what you're finding is there's an argument that's escalated. A neighbor's become concerned. They've called the police. The police have come in a much, much earlier stage. There may or may not have been several other incidents. There may or may not have been violence at that point, but they're getting involved at a much, much earlier stage. We're not seeing that happening with ethnic minorities. The 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 time when they intervene is much, much later. The neighbours are less likely to call the police because they're all from potentially the same ethnic background. There's more justification going on. So what we're finding with authorities is this sentiment that we mustn't criminalise ethnic minority perpetrators because, of course, you know, they think they're institutionally racist. However, institutional racism is always viewed through the lens of the perpetrator and the offender rather than the victim or the survivor. They never. What's institutionally racist is not dealing with perpetrators at the same stage as as you would do with white British perpetrators. Why are we? Why are professionals getting involved after there has been long term ongoing abuse rather than getting involved earlier and challenging their ideas at a much much earlier stage? If you have demographics that are more misogynistic and believe you me, I work on the front lines. There is far, far more deep-rooted misogyny within some ethnic minority communities because we're not challenging their ideas. We're allowing that misogyny to continue unchecked. Not only are we allowing it to continue, we, we fail to challenge it when it's facing us straight up in the face. Um, we're not willing to get involved and do the early intervention or prevention work within those communities. Um, you know, we're also, we harp on about racism, but at the wrong in the wrong instance, at the wrong time, with the wrong with the wrong people, we focus on it about perpetrators, not about victims. I mean, a, a really big example of this is the Shamima Begum case. There's so much talk about that girl uh, or that woman, I should say, about um, uh, the the unfairness that she is experiencing. There's been far far less focus on her victims um, and the. Just for the any American listeners, this is uh, so. This is a woman who left to join ISIS. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, in 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 relation to ethnic minority perpetrators, that we are very cowardly when it comes to dealing with ethnic minority perpetrators, and that is the reason why we have over over representation in the in the criminal justice system, because by the time we are intervening. There have been more instances of abuse. They've increased in severity because if abuse goes unchecked, 
you are more likely to increase its severity because you're getting away with it. That's normal. It's just, it's like any criminal activity. If you carry on getting away with it, you're more likely to justify your increasing of that criminal activity, whatever it is, because you know you can get away with it. Um, And also, they know that professionals are very, very cowardly when it comes to dealing with perpetration within ethnic minority communities. So it's created the perfect storm um, for victims, they are completely lost in this. Very often, when we're talking about offending within ethnic minority communities, the focus is on the perpetrator, not on the victim, not on justice for the victim, not holding the perpetrator to account. Um, and and that's why, by the time it lands up in court, they are guaranteed more likely to go to prison because it's gone on for longer, it's increased in severity, um, there have been more episodes, um, and as well as that, we are more likely to see ethnic minorities um, uh, um, lodge not guilty pleas in comparison to their uh, white counterpart, white British counterparts specifically because uh, and that's more likely to increase the length of their their prison sentence as well um so so statistics looking at them in isolation is no good because there tends to be a backstory and we don't always look at that that backstory um and, and this is the the backstory to these statistics now the one of the solutions to this is very very simple actually Um, which organisations keep failing to do. Get outreach workers, get out into that community and challenge those ideas. So domestic abuse and sexual violence services are not very good at this, I must admit, of going out into the community and challenging those ideas, those very, very misogynistic, completely out of date ideas. And I don't care what their ideas are back home, what their religion or culture tells them. Actually, in Britain, it's not acceptable to rape and abuse your wife. It's not acceptable to ha- uh, imprison your daughters and not not let them out and not in- not let them integrate. You know, there's certain things that are completely unacceptable. If you see a woman wearing revealing clothing, that's not an open invitation to you. Um, we've smashed those stereotypes and those myths in the British culture, um, like the the kind of white English population. Um, domestic abuse and sexual violence we finally reached a point where we think it's socially unacceptable so when we speak to perpetrators even that are from that demographic they're they're quite ashamed there is there is this reluctance to identify with extreme perpetration um there is this desire to separate distance themselves from perp domestic abuse perpetrators as what uh, as as we um, historically knew them, that's not the that's not the picture that I see with ethnic minority um, perpetrators of either domestic abuse, sexual violence, or harmful traditional practices. Um, there's a, a lot more justifying, um, and those misogynistic ideas are far, far, far more deep rooted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you tell tell me a little bit about your work at Gloucestershire, Gloucester sisters. Yeah, Gloucestershire so sisters. Gloucestershire sisters. Um, COVID's kind of put a bit of a break on our work, but um, it's effectively training and upskilling professionals that already work with um, 
victims, survivors and, and perpetrators of um, harmful traditional practices. So we don't do frontline work because they're services that have got a lot of funds and resources to do that work. And I expect them to do that work. Their, their role is to to deal with um um, you know, domestic abuse and sexual violence and harmful traditional practices fit under that umbrella. Um, we we um, sort of train professionals about harmful traditional practices, but I have to say the majority of my job today, yeah, so when I first started delivering training about seven, eight years ago, um, there wasn't that much awareness of the issues, even though there had been a lot of campaigning and activism around um, harmful traditional practices. Um, this county there wasn't that much knowledge and awareness of it um it was there but it wasn't still extensive and you know um for example fgm didn't have the profile it has now forced marriage didn't have the profile it has now and now that it's a criminal offense the training requirements are different so back then i was training them about the issues um but today i actually don't have to train professionals about the law around harmful traditional practices, um, I don't even have to train them about what they should be doing. It's a part of the training. I do include all of this stuff. The bulk of my training is dealing with professional hesitancy in working with ethnic minority communities and dealing with these crimes when they arise. That is the biggest part of my job um and it was there before but it's an even bigger part now um the 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 training around the law is very easy i probably have one side around it and it's very very easy all of the professionals actually know that it's a criminal offense um uh, statistics again it's important for them to understand which demographics are impacted and as i'm talking about that i'm also uh, kind of exploring any nervousness professionals have in dealing with um, ethnic minority perpetrators there is an incredible amount of fear um, and anxiety from professionals in working with these issues specifically because of the demographic that's that's that it's most prevalent in there was there is so much fear of allegations of racism bigotry islamophobia all of those things um and that's that's very very that's one of the reasons why professionals are reluctant to get involved at an earlier stage as well i mean i have i have had clients sit in front of me and you know say well one of the reasons why professionals are involved with my family or social care is involved with my family is because of racism and I don't I don't change my face I don't give them a reaction because they think that what's going to happen is you're going to back off the minute they say that and if you back off they know they can they can utilize that what I do have to tell mostly social workers and professionals is that if you're involved with a family and you're telling them that there's an issue with their family, no no, no family member um, likes to hear that they're a bad parent or that they're getting something wrong. It really makes them feel self-conscious. So from our perspective as professionals, what we know is anytime you get involved with any family, there is going to be defensiveness, 
they are potentially likely likely to get confrontational. That is a risk when you get involved with any family. Um, however, when it comes to ethnic minorities, what they have as a, an additional um, response when you get involved is allegations of racism and Islamophobia. Um, and I have to remind professionals, if you're working with ethnic minority children in safeguarding them, well, you wouldn't do that if you were a racist, would you? And and mm. with sometimes with professionals, there's like a penny drop moment where they're like, oh, yeah, I can use that. Um, sometimes they're still afraid. Um, and there's only so much that I can do in a day. But in a day, what I try and do is um, explore their fears and anxieties around broaching these issues um, because the issues themselves are the easy bit. The, their fears and anxieties in doing their job is the harder thing and it's been made harder by managers that don't necessarily understand what to do when these allegations arise um, mm -hmm. so part of my role is to support them to understand what exactly it is they should do when these allegations arise and how to deal with their managers as well um, and how to ensure that they justify decisions that they've made um, before allegations arise um, that's kind of like the bulk of the work really um, the other thing that we're hoping to do once the the whole COVID restrictions have completely lifted is try and start um, general community engagement within ethnic minority communities specifically um, challenging them on their ideas um, not kind of doing the pussyfooting around them of, you know, the, the kind of things that we see generally of, oh, these are your ideas, that's okay, because it's not. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it's about time that somebody started going into the, those communities and challenging them on their ideas, gently and respectfully, of course, but it does need to be done now. So we're hoping that that's the next uh, step in the future. Thank you so much, Sadia. I think that is a good uh, place to end on. That's okay. I was just saying thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to speak to you. It's been my pleasure. Um, so I will put in the show notes, I'll put links to um, your work, and I would encourage everyone to check that out. And um, this is a really important conversation, and it's very important to be able to be courageous and frank um, about these issues. And I'm so happy that, that you're out there doing that, fighting the good fight. Thank you. It's people like you that make it easier though. Just having, even having a few sort of allies does help because sometimes you feel like you're swimming against the tide. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. I can imagine. Yeah. It's really lovely when you find somebody who gets it and is supportive because that's not always what we find, um, you know, spe specifically on in frontline professionals, um, people's fears take over. And I think, I think from our perspective, when we're on the other side, it's important also to be patient um, because what, what, what people are, most people are afraid to stick their head above the parapet. I do get that. I really do. People have got families and, and, you know, homes to pay for and children to look after and stuff and sometimes it's just about being a little bit patient if if they uh if they are afraid um 
I have a limit though. <laughs> After a few yeah. sessions of training, I'm like, right, so you've had the training, now you're just being a douche. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't be a douche. Thank you so much, Sadia. <laughs> For the, we'll end on that note of excellent advice and have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.